0: So the title of today is called Fan or Follower. Fan or Follower. This is a title that I stole from a book by that name. I did not read the book. So if you find the book and you're like, oh, Pastor Chris said this was a good book. I did not say it was a good book. I don't know much about the book. I just like the title of it. So I stole it for this sermon. Um, Fan or Follower. My daughter, Sienna, when she started gymnastics, she was a fan. She liked it. She practiced in the backyard, when she had spare time, she would asked to do a lesson with Pam Hess, she was interested in it. But it wasn't driving her schedule, she wasn't uh, missing sleep for it, she wasn't giving up time with friends for it, she was a fan of it. Cut to two years later, she has become a devoted follower of gymnastics. It drives her schedule. She practices 15, 16 hours a week, uh, goes to practice, competes with it, uh, comes home from school thinking about it, gives up time with friends for it, loses sleep for it. Sometimes, much to my dismay, it drives her emotions uh, a lot more than I think it should. But that's what it means to be a devoted follower of something versus a fan. And so we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus versus a fan of Jesus fans of Jesus can praise him and celebrate him and talk about him but may not really worship him. They might really be worshipping what they want him to give them. Whereas a follower of Jesus would say, I'm worshipping Jesus no matter what. No matter where it takes me, no matter what it costs. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at this scene where Jesus enters Jerusalem on what is called now Palm Sunday. Wasn't called that then. And then we're going to look at another scene from the next day where Jesus enters the temple. And then at the end of that, I'm going to make a few points about what it means to be uh, about the difference between being a fan versus being a follower. So I'm going to save that for the end. We're just going to look at these passages, try to talk about what did it mean in that time. So let's get into it. Here we go. We're going to start right off the bat. Actually, let me, let me set the stage a little bit. Let me set the context. So it's Passover week in Jerusalem. Passover week is a really busy time. Think Times Square on New Year's Eve. People flooded, Jews flooded Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire because that was a time when they would offer sacrifices. That was a time when they were celebrating and remembering God delivering them many, 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 many years earlier from the Egyptians. The Egyptians ruled over them and God freed them from the Egyptians. Now they're under Roman oppression, They are subjects of Rome. Rome rules the known world. And this little patch of Palestine, this little area where Jews mostly lived, was a difficult area for the Romans to rule, for them to um, uh, establish order over. The, The Jews could be a little obstinate, a little stubborn, because they believed they were not meant to be ruled by Rome. They believed they were meant to be free. They believed they were meant to have a king from the line of David rule over them. And so especially at Passover, when more Jews were in Jerusalem, Rome got a little nervous. And they're like, oh boy, these guys don't like us ruling. It's Passover week. More people are in the area. Consider like this. We celebrate at 4th of July our independence from England, right? Imagine a time when Canada ruled over us. I know some of you guys are like, ah, they'll never rule us. Imagine there's a day, 100 years from now, where Canada ruled over us, and it's the 4th of July. We would be at one time remembering our independence from England, and we would also be going, oh, Canada, we're coming for you too. Right? There's a little bit of that. And that's what was going on for the Jews. They're like, oh, and God's going to do the same thing to the Romans. The Messiah is coming. He's going he's to go to war with the Romans. He's going to free us from the Romans, just like he did for the Egyptians. That's what was going on. Rome knew it. Rome knew that if they had a few too many to drink, if the parties got a little out of hand, there could be some revolts in the street. So they sent down some extra uh, soldiers. They sent Pontius Pilate down. Pontius Pilate came down from this point um, out of uh, Caesarea Philippi, where he lived up north. He would travel down, and he would enter Jerusalem from the west for Passover. And he would come with his might and his strength and his horses and chariots and soldiers. And he would be coming to say, we're going to have order here no matter what. We're going to have peace here no matter what violence it it costs us. We're ready for it. And around the same time, Jesus is going to come and enter Jerusalem from the east. Two kingdoms coming Into Jerusalem at Passover, one with its strength, one with Rome behind it, and the other one coming to establish a very different kind of kingdom. But the people there, the people, the Jews, they're expecting Jesus to come and go to war with the Romans. That's what they're expecting. That's what's in the air. And so, here we go. Jesus is going to come. There's this bit about a donkey. Look look at this. Look at this. We're going to pick it up right here in verse 2. Where Jesus says to his disciples, go to the village ahead of you and at once you're going to find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So these first few verses of chapter 21 are about a donkey and its colt. And you might think, what's up with the donkey? This is Matthew's way of saying, Matthew wrote this after Jesus died and rose again. Matthew wrote this and he's saying that Jesus went out of his way to make it clear he is declaring himself to be the promised Messiah. This wasn't an accident that he came across a donkey and everybody was like, what are you going to ride on? Let's ride on some donkeys. No, he was like, my father has prepared a particular donkey. Go find that donkey. Bring him there. And Matthew's saying this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. That would be Zechariah. That the Messiah is going to come riding on a colt. The foal of a donkey. This was an undeniable declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah that the people are expecting. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy in Zechariah. But he's coming on a donkey to establish peace. Donkeys were a symbol of peace. If a general was coming in on a horse, it meant war. But if he came on a donkey in the ancient Middle East, it meant peace. The people missed this. They were thinking, oh, he's coming to make war with the Romans. Let's keep going. Verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So the people took their cloaks. Many people only had one cloak in this time. I mean, you, you know, like... Think of your car. I mean, you've got one car and you're giving it up. This was their way of pledging their allegiance to this Messiah. This was their way of pledging their loyalty, putting it on the donkey, spreading it on. And this wasn't paved roads. This was mud. This was horse manure roads. This was their way of saying, we're with you. We're giving you our allegiance. We're giving you our loyalty. Lead us in this revolt against Rome. And they cut Branches from trees, this would be palm branches, spread them on the road. We also know that they were waving, these palm branches, when Jesus came. Palm branches had become a symbol of revolution. It had come to be a symbol of freedom for Israel. 200 years earlier, Judas Maccabeus, a Jew, uh, went out conquered some pagan leaders, and came riding back into Jerusalem, and the people were waving palm branches. That was 200 years earlier. So by this time, palm branches meant, oh, we're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. In fact, there was a point, I don't know if it was at this particular point, but there was a point where it was a capital offense in Rome to wave palm branches. Because it meant treason. It meant we're going to war with you. It meant you better look out, Rome. Rome. It would probably be similar, not exactly the same, but probably a little similar to after the Civil War was over, April of 1865, the North is celebrating, Lincoln celebrating in Washington, D.C., if a group of people entered D.C., the streets of D.C., waving Confederate flags. It would mean, like, yo, you guys didn't win. We're still here. Like, it would mean war, right? And that's probably a little bit how Rome saw it. Furthermore palm branches were associated with the most radical sect of Jews, the Zealots. There were different groups of, of, of Jews who uh, had different perspectives on what their relationship with Rome should be. Some thought they should be more sympathetic and kind of partner with them and others thought, no way, this is, a, this is a secular pagan government and we got to get rid of them and that was the Zealots. The Zealots loved their palm branches. And so that's what was going on in this crowd. That was, 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 was what was going on in the, in the air. And then, then they sing a royal hymn. Look at verse 9. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save us now, to the son of David. The Messiah was expected to come from the line of David. They knew Jesus came from the line of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's is a royal hymn. They're celebrating Jesus coming. And Jesus doesn't stop them. He doesn't stop them from praising him. Because he does indeed declare himself to be king with this move. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Remember, there's people from all over the place coming into Jerusalem. Not everybody had heard about Jesus. Not everybody knew. But the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And they believed it was time It was time, our Independence Day from Rome. Here we go. Now, Jesus accepted their praise, but He knew many of them were not fully worshiping Him. The same people who were shouting Hosanna to the Son of David would just in a few days be shouting, crucify Him, crucify Him. Why? Because they were fans of him when they expected him to do what they wanted to do. They were fans of him when they expected him to give them what they really worshipped, which was a political victory. And they turned against him when they realized, oh, he ain't going to give us what we wanted. Get rid of him. Never mind. Who's next? Who's the next person we can put our hope in? In other words, it's possible to praise Jesus without worshipping him. It's possible to praise Jesus without worshiping him. You can't worship him without praising him. Praise is part of worship. We worship Jesus in different ways and praising him with our mouth is part of that. It's not less than praise, but it's definitely more than praising him. You can praise him without worshiping him. You can sing the songs. You can go to the concerts at Six Flags Great Adventure when some Christian band is singing. You can go to the Hillsong Deals and yet not worship Jesus, have no desire to submit your life to him and say, you're my master, you're my Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. It's possible to come in here on Sunday mornings and say, I love those songs we sing. Can we sing, I just heard it's on 99.1, can we sing this song? But have no desire to submit our lives to him. It's a sobering reminder, right? A true test of whether we worship him is what comes out of us when we are getting Not getting what we want from him. That's often the test of whether we're a fan or a follower. Is it grumbling? Is it complaining? Is it anger? Is it raising our fists at him? That's a symptom of being a fan. And by the way, I don't think, and we'll talk about this later on, I don't think it's one category or the other. I think there's more of a continuum. And God is always wanting to move us deeper and deeper and deeper into being a fully devoted follower of him. And there's always a little bit of a drift in all of us towards being a fan. It's easier. It's more convenient. Let's keep going. That's number, that's scene one. Scene two. is the next day. It's Monday. Matthew doesn't tell us it's the next day, but Mark's gospel does. Jesus had gone back out that night. He slept at Bethany and he came back to Jerusalem. Verse 12. He entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So, he comes into the temple. He sees, let me, let me show you a diagram of the temple. Uh, there's the Holy of Holies, you see that? On, my, on our right there, you know, then there's the court of the priests. There's the court of the, the, of the Jews. That would be the men of Israel. There's the court of the women. They could go to the outer courts. But then you see that outside border that says court of the Gentiles. See that? That would be where those who were not born Jewish but were wanting to convert to Judaism, wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. That's where they could go worship. They couldn't go further into that. They were on that. They were limited to the outside border. That's where Jesus comes in and finds the religious leaders selling animals and exchanging money because it's Passover. What was going on at Passover? Again, people were coming from all over the place, all over the Roman Empire. Oftentimes, they didn't want to carry their animals. So they could buy an animal. They could buy a a cow, sheep, goats, doves at the temple, and you would think, well, the priests are making it easy on people. But what the priests were doing, was they were jacking up the price. Like the movie theater does with our popcorn. Like the airport does, right? You ever notice you forget to bring, you know, your bag of snacks for the airplane? You're like, ugh, I got to buy an $18 bag of chips now. That's what the priests were doing. And sometimes people would bring their own animal, and the priests would inspect it and go, sorry, we found a blemish. You're going to have to buy one of ours. So it was a little shady business. Um, there was a temple tax, and so people had to exchange their currency if they were coming from a distant uh, land. And so the priests made it easy to exchange their currencies for the temple tax, but they would charge 10 to 12% in interest sometimes. They were getting money. They were feeding their greed of Passover. And furthermore, what was perhaps really offensive to Jesus is that all this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles so that the, the people from distant lands who were coming to worship Jesus, who were not Jews, were being driven out. They had no space for it. Their place of worship, their place of prayer was being crowded out by the greed of the priests The priests who were supposed to represent God's heart to the people. The priests who were supposed to know from their scriptures that God has a plan for all nations to come to him through his temple. Which would be Jesus, the living temple. But the priests were missing it. And that's why Jesus said, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer that Old Testament verse continues for all nations. Mark's gospel says for all nations. Matthew's writing to Jews. Maybe he just knew, everybody knew how it ended. It's, it's not just a house of prayer, but it's a house of prayer for even the outsiders to come in. And you're making it difficult for outsiders to come in by making this a, a den of robbers. You're feeding your greed at the expense of outsiders. And he calls it his house. He quotes. So in the Old Testament, he quotes God. He identifies himself with God. Again, this would be blasphemy in the eyes of the religious leaders. How dare he say this? How dare he claim this to be his temple? But he does. He does. And it's interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting. Jesus came in the day before to Jerusalem. The people expected him to go to war against the Romans. And what did he do? He came in on a donkey call. He came in meekness. But the next day, he goes to war with the religious leaders. He flips over the tables. He, he sends the coins flying. The other gospel account says he's made to whip out of cords, maybe his tassels. And he gets the animals going. He doesn't whip the people, but he gets the animals going. He creates chaos. makes it uncomfortable for the priests. He doesn't go into, in other words, he wasn't driving Romans out of their sexually immoral bathhouses as many Jews wanted them to. He was confronting by the religious leaders in his temple. I take note of that. Everybody, before you go on social media and rant about the culture out there, what did Jesus do? He came into his house. Because I'm not concerned about the Romans and their bathhouses out there. I'm not concerned about the secular government, what they're doing out there. I'm concerned about what you're doing in my house, my people, whether they're going to really be worshipers of me or just fans of me. That's what he was concerned about. So, in, in summary, he comes to Jerusalem. He declares himself to be the Messiah, but he knows that the people who are praising him are not worshiping him for the right reasons. He comes on a donkey. He comes in meekness. He comes in humility. The next day, he shows up at the temple. He confronts the religious leaders, calls it his temple, commits blasphemy in their eyes, knows that they're going to want to kill him now, tells them that they are not representing God's heart in his temple, not allowing Gentiles and outsiders to come in, which was God's plan all along, creates chaos, ticks them all off. What does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for you and me? We're going to prepare to close with one song that I hope we can sing as a prayer. It's an oldie. But before we sing it, I want to just make four points about the difference between a fan and a follower. And remember, this is not for us to say, oh, I'm, I'm a follower, I'm not a fan. It's, it's where am I on this continuum and how will God want to move me to be more and more of a, of a devoted follower of Jesus? Number one. Fans praise Jesus so long as he meets their expectations. Followers praise him no matter what. Fans praise him so long as he meets their expectations. We will sing songs about him, but when he is not doing what we want him to do, when our plans are not going the way we want them to go, uh, fans' tendency is to say, I tried that. Let me try something else now. Or maybe it's more subtle in our hearts, we just go, I'm just angry. I'm just going to be angry at God, and it's okay to wrestle with some anger and to fight through it with God, but it's another thing to say, "Mm mm-mm, I'm done with God, I'm walking away, I didn't get what I wanted. There's a movie that my family watched recently, I'm not a big fan of Christian movies, typically, but this was a pretty good one. Football coach takes over a team, and I forget the name of it, but he said to them, he said, guys, when we win, we praise him, when we lose, we praise him. And, and, and we say that sometimes around the house. Hey, guys, remember a soccer game? Or when we win, we praise him. When we lose, we praise him. He's God. He's king. He's king over everything. That's the posture that Jesus wants us to take in every area of our life. The crowds who cheered, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then turned on him, didn't get what they wanted. They felt a lack of political peace. They wanted him to give them that victory. They realized he wasn't going to do that, and they turned on him. Do we do that with the things that we feel a lack of? Single people who want to get married. Are you going to be okay if you don't? Because you might not. Are you going to be, can you say, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm still complete in you. I'm still whole in you. I can still worship you. I can still exude the fruit of the spirit of joy and peace and patience. Or is there going to be a bitterness and a, and a constant wallowing in, in self-pity what about with finances? I'm expecting God to do this. I'm wanting God to do this. Can you be okay if he doesn't? Whatever you feel a lack of, if God doesn't give it to you in the way you want him to give it to you, can you still praise him? That's number one. That's number one. That's number one. In other words, followers know that Jesus is faithful even if he's unpredictable. Right? He's unpredictable. He's going to do things with our lives that don't make sense sometimes. It's going to be disorienting. Why did you put me in this relationship? This one is struggling. This one's hard. I don't know what to do here, Jesus. But can we say, but you're faithful. I know you're at work, and I know you're at work in me in this. Or when things don't make sense, do we back off? Do we put up our walls with him? Do we put up our walls with others? Number two. When Jesus cleanses his new temple, fans resist him while followers submit to him. So just like Jesus cleansed his father's temple, it was a foreshadow of what he does with you and I. We are called his new temple. When Jesus left earth, he poured out his spirit on his followers, and then the Bible calls us his new temple on earth. We are where God's presence dwells on earth. We are where heaven meets earth. The church, bunch of imperfect, messed up people. That's where God meets earth. Those of you who trust in Jesus are called living stones in God's temple. We are built together to be his temple. And Jesus is still committed to cleansing his temple. He is still ferociously committed to cleansing our hearts of anything that doesn't belong, that doesn't look like him. Whatever idols are we're allowing to live in there, he's like, oh, I want to go and flip those idols over because I love you so much. I've noticed over the years, people who are not followers of Jesus can get away with things a lot easier than people who are followers of Jesus. You ever notice that? You ever notice that once you became a follower of Jesus, you start getting caught more, exposed more? If you tried to lie about something, you're caught you try to get away with an addiction, it's exposed. I've seen this over the years. I think I told somebody in jail one time. I don't remember. It all bleeds together sometimes, but I was visiting somebody in jail, and I think I remember saying, this is God's grace on your life. You got caught. Praise God. This is how much he loves you. He's not going to let you get away with this because he wants to cleanse and purify and mold you into his image. And he might be doing that to some of you right now, and it's uncomfortable. And you're like, why would Jesus put me through this uncomfortable? Because he loves you so much. He loves you so much. And he cleanses his temple. And the big question is, are we going to resist him? And say, no, 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 no. no"? I want to hold on to this addiction. I want to hold on to this bitterness. I want to hold on to this unforgiveness. I want to hold on to this attitude that I have. Or are we going to open ourselves up and say, have your way. Have your way. Have your way. Purify and cleanse Drive out anything that doesn't belong. If there's anything that's become too important, Jesus, drive it out. Drive it out. Flip it over. Even if it's uncomfortable for a moment. I know that there's life on the other side. He's full of grace and forgiveness for the worst of evils, but his grace wants to drive out the smallest of idols. All right, so it's not a reason to feel ashamed. It's not a reason to go, oh, no, I've got this in my life. I'm a I'm, I'm horrible person. No, it's just like, Jesus, yeah, have your way. I know you love me. I know you forget my dinner table for them. Not just be okay with them sitting on the other side of the sanctuary at church service. Our worship of Jesus is not meant to be just a private faith. It's meant to lead to us to share his heart for the world around us. All peoples. Jesus spent so much time with the outcasts, people, other religious folks, wanted nothing to do with Who's different from you? Who rubs you the wrong way? Whose sins are especially offensive to you? What does Jesus want you to do about it? And then lastly, lastly, lastly. Fans want political power while followers want spiritual power. Now, I want to be as clear as I can, Um, and I probably won't be as clear as I want to be. So you can talk to me afterwards if there's something that I need to clarify. We just finished the justice series. We talked about how policies matter, right? We're called to fight for justice for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, and policies matter, okay? We talked about that in January. But what was going on here was that the Israelites expected Jesus to make Israel great again. Right? That's what they expected. And when they realized he wasn't going that route, when they realized that what he came to do, which was so foreign to them, which was to take care of their sin, to die for their sin, like, no, 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 that's not the war we're fighting. We're fighting against the Romans. But that's the war Jesus came to fight in his first coming. Now he's coming again in the second time. He's going to crush every political party and entity and king. And and everybody's going to bow to him. That's coming in the second coming. But his first coming was in humility and his meekness. And he said, I came to give my life as a ransom so that your sin could be paid for. So that I could break the power that sin has over your heart, your mind. And so that you could then represent me to the world around you. And if our focus is too much on Jesus give us political power, give us those policies so that our life is more comfortable in America at the expense of him doing a work in our hearts, then we are not going to properly represent him to the world around us. And we're going to make him look bad. Fans want power more than anything. Followers are like, yeah, hey, listen, policies matter. Policies matter. But more than anything, I want to show the world what it means to be changed by Jesus. Right? Not chasing out. And oftentimes what fans of Jesus will do is they'll fight for political power in the name of Jesus, but without the humility of Jesus, and therefore they will be fighting for the other side. It doesn't matter what Policy, party, whatever, if we're not doing it with the meekness and humility of Jesus, we are pouring gasoline on the fire of the other side, the other kingdom, the kingdom of of Satan. It doesn't matter what party policy it is, if it's not done with the humility of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. And that's oftentimes what we do. Well, I'm going to fight in the name of Jesus for, and we do it exactly the opposite of how Jesus would do it. And Jesus is like, mm, no, what I want to do is change you so that you can represent my heart to the world around. I want you to show what it looks like to exude love for your enemies. I want my people to show what it looks like to forgive those who hurt and persecute you. And if you're spending too much time ranting or raving, about what policies need to change, if our list of what needs to change in America is a lot longer than our list of what needs to change in our hearts, there's probably a problem. Right? Let's not be like those Israelites. That day, that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, waving palm branches, let's not pick up our palm branches, crying for revolution if we're not willing for him to flip over tables in our heart. Let me call the band up. So we're going to, three steps that you can take in addition to whatever else the Holy Spirit shows you to take. Number one, you can stand. That's number one, you can stand. (laughs) Number two, you can sing along to this song as a prayer. It's an old school song. If you were born like, if you're younger than me, maybe you've never heard it before, but you can get the lyrics and you can sing. It's based on a psalm. It's about God just cleansing our hearts. Just ask him, God, what, what do you want to flip over in my life? What do you want to drive out? Number two, if you know that, hey, I have been a fan of Jesus, but I want to be a follower, I want to p- proclaim that I'm a follower of Jesus, you can get baptized. We're going to have a baptism at some point over the next few weeks. We're going to schedule it based on the first person who signs up. And so if you're ready to say, listen, I'm I'm moving from fan to follower, let us know. Talk to me. Fill out a card. That Lent fast, you can be part of that. Because part of that's going to be, Lord, what in my heart do you want to change in this season? What do you want me to die to so that you can resurrect something new in its place? That's what we're going to be meditating on the next Six or seven Thursdays. So, those are just a few steps you can take. And again, in addition to whatever the, whatever the Holy Spirit shows you, He might say, you know what, you got to go forgive so and so. Or you may need to get rid of this thing in your life. Stop spending so much time here or there. I don't know. But let's make this song our prayer.